Listeners, Alex here, sitting down today with Brian Evanson to discuss his latest collection of short stories, The Glossy Burning Floor of Hell. Brian Evanson is the author of over a dozen works of fiction and has received three O. Henry Prizes for his fiction. His most recent book prior to Glassy Burning Floor of Hell won a World Fantasy Award and a Shirley Jackson Award and was a finalist for both the Los Angeles Times Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Speculative Fiction and the Balcones Fiction Prize. He lives in Los Angeles and teaches at Cal Arts. A sentient, murderous prosthetic leg, shadowy creatures lurking behind a shimmering wall, brutal barrow men, all of the terrors that populate the glassy burning floor of hell, perhaps the most alarming are the beings who decimated the habitable earth, humans. In this new short story collection, Brian Evanson envisions a chilling future beyond the Anthropocene that forces excruciating decisions about survival and self-sacrifice in the face of toxic air and a natural world torn between revenge and regeneration. Combining psychological and ecological horror, each tale thrums with Evanson's award-winning literary craftsmanship, dark humor, and thrilling suspense. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, I hate to admit that uh, Glassy Burning Floor of Hell was my first time reading your work. Uh, Naturally, I've gone ahead and ordered more of your short story collections for myself. Uh, As your particular brand of horror appeals to me in such a needful way, um, I'm sure you get the what draws you to the short story format question often, so I'll try to ask it in a different way, uh, because it is clear that you're drawn to short stories um, Mm -hmm. as a format for your work as you do come back to it. What specifically is it about the short story format that allows you to present and execute particular themes in a collection? You you know, I'm I'm one of those people who's lucky enough to have lots more ideas than I could actually write. And short stories allow me to write at least more of them than than writing in Hovelwood. And and one thing I love about the form is just you you can kind of get in, you can do something um, fairly concisely, but kind of explore something and then get out again. Um, and so, so it's just, you know, I, I just love that kind of thing of creating this small little world, um, entering into it and then letting it go. And what dictates the mood of a collection that you're, you're about to present? I mean, reading past interviews with you, it definitely seems like there's more of an intuitive approach behind it rather than making mm-hmm. a structured and planned decision to go with, you know, X or Y or Z as the general theme or atmosphere. So can yeah. you just expand a little bit on some of the things that inspired you to write the stories contained in a uh, glassy floor is what we, we've actually, we call it a glassy floor hell book at the bookstore as a <laughs> nickname. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's a great nickname. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it is a more intuitive process to me. And usually when I'm working on a collection, it's like, I, I, I don't know I'm working on a collection until I have mm-hmm. maybe um, two-thirds of the stories that are going to be in it. And then at that point, I s- start kind of seeing that there's certain themes and certain kinds of ideas that are, are kind of connecting and crossing. And, and then I start to very consciously kind of work towards figuring out, all right, where the gaps are, what else do I want to do to finish this, um, what stories don't fit in. So So a lot of collections will have stories, some stories will be, five or six years old and others will be very, very recent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there, so there are stories in the glassy burning floor of hell, one or two that were written before 
not only Song for the Unraveling of the World, which is my previous collection, but even before Collapse of Horses, uh, which a Collapse mm-hmm. of Horses, which was my collection before that. And so, so it is, it's very curated in terms of figuring out how are these stories talking to one another? Um, what kinds of things are they approaching? Um, what, and, and ideally I want it so that, that one story is going to kind of open up other stories in different ways. Mm. And so, so as you kind of continue to read your, your sense of the collection changes. Um, and this, this collection is really the first one I wrote that, um, usually what happens is I turn it into a coffee house and then I revise and revise and revise and add stories and drop stories until they're just totally sick of me, um, until the very last moment. Uh, and this one, um, I, I ended up spending more time on and we got it to a point where we were both happy with it kind of, um, before I, you know, as I turned it in. And so, so it, it's the only collection I've kind of, that, that's the same as what I turned in initially to coffee house. I, I mean, you answered it somewhat, um, but one of my questions was also, you know, once you figure out kind of the direction that you're going theme-wise for one of your collections, um, how far are you, like, willing to lean into that to dictate your writing? Or is it constantly kind of this pattern of, you know, I'm going to write what I'm going to write, and if it fits for this one, it fits for this one. If it's going to fit into a future one, it's going to fit into a future one. It sounds like you're the former a little bit more. Uh, somewhat the former, but only at a certain point. And, and mm-hmm. I feel like, yeah, I mean, I'm always, uh, writing work and there's, there's stories that I have never put in a collection that I've had in magazines and not gathered. And, you know, every time I kind of put a collection together, I sometimes go through those and think, oh, do these belong here? And usually the answer is no. And so maybe, <laughs> maybe they'll, they'll belong later on. Um, so, so it is tricky because, you know, a lot of the um, stories um, I, I write these days, um, I'm solicited to write. And so, mm-hmm. so I, I, I'm doing stuff for particular magazines or particular purposes. And then, um, you know, it, it's really kind of the process of, of, of reaching a point where you just start feeling like you have a critical mass and then start to think about how, how it all fits together. And, and you know, it's something like The Glassy Burning Floor of Hell – it's it's not so much that like every story is thematically connected. It's that there are mm-hmm. these kind of lines of thematic connection between various stories that hold the collection together like a net. And so there's there's different kind of through lines that you can pursue and and different ways in which you know you, I think you can kind of see certain lines like there's a kind of post-human thing going on. There's an mm-hmm. ecological horror mm-hmm. thing going on, and and then at certain points those two things come together and you know other sorts of thematics as well. Oh, we're going to talk about it. Um, uh, Shirley Jackson writes uh, in The Haunting of Hill House, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Um, Our current absolute reality being a raging pandemic, would you say this had any impact of your writing? You know, weirdly enough, not on this book, um, because it was all (laughs) finished. I actually finished the book in March of 2020. And so um, oh, okay. the, the draft was, okay. yeah, draft was done by then. Um, but weirdly, um, there's a lot of stories that in retrospect feel very pandemic-y. And I don't know if it was just, there was something in the air, politically, <laughs> at least in the United States, things were, you know, um, um, complicated. And so so maybe all those things were kind of adding up and, and in a way that uh, was, was uh, makes it still seem relevant to the pandemic. Um, but, and so I actually have had several people ask about that just because it's like, 
the lag time is is not always clear how much the lag time is, and that's pretty long lag time. Um, but no, none of the stories were written kind of during the pandemic. Uh, I've written stories since, and weirdly, I think a lot of those are more like expansive, <laughs> mm. partly because it's like that's the you know it's it's hard to when you're feeling very claustrophobic to write stuff that's very claustrophobic. And there's, I was going to say, you know, we're contained for so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's true. Yeah, you were, we're contained for so long. It just it felt, you know, um, almost like I, I almost like realism to write some of the work that I normally would write. <laughs> um, but there was one story I wrote um, pretty early in the pandemic in in May or or June of 2020, mm-hmm. um, which which I'm very happy with, and which will be in the next collection, and which is very much about you know some of the themes in the pandemic, and and you know when I first sent that out, people would be like, "This is a great story, but we cannot even bear to read it," um, <laughs> and and it was just that was all too close. So I, I think in in some ways it's like the 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 work that is is most kind of relevant to the pandemic is going to only start happening once we kind of have a moment to like breathe and digest and feel mm. like we're free of it if we ever are free of it. Yeah, so I was going to say maybe this is a more appropriate question when we uh when we discuss your next book. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um uh can you give me your definition of ecological horror? What does it mean to you? Um and just kind of flesh it out for our listeners a little bit who might not be uh familiar with the term. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I kind of see what I'm doing as, as um, thinking about ecological issues, um, and, and I, th- I think there's ways of thinking about them that are very much about trying to find a solution, and there's people I, I really admire who do that. Kim Stanley Robinson, has, has his most recent book is about that, um, and a number of other people. But, but it's also, I think, that, that one thing that my work does is, is it tries to look um, – very directly at how bad things could get. And so for me, ecological horror is, is, is this thing of, of thinking about, all right, where are we? Um, what path are we on? How badly could it turn out? And there's three or four stories in the collection that are kind of that way. And that's also a big theme in uh, the collection that, that follows as well. So I'm about two-thirds of the way done with the, the next collection. In reading the description for your book, The Wandering Knife, uh, there's a particularly apt descriptor of your brand that I really latched onto, um, savage blankness. I would actually go so far to say that this idea, along with how um, Glassy Floor is branded as ecological horror, really go hand in hand. Um, Would you agree with this assessment? And the follow-up question would be, what does ecological horror look like without savage blankness yeah yeah i mean those those are really good questions um yeah i i I feel like i came out of a tradition of writing that was was fairly minimal so um you know very interested in doing as much as possible with as little as possible on the page and that's something i've been really committed to just trying to do a lot with a little and work with rhythm and sound and things like that which i don't think is always typical of, of of genre writing but you know can be um and savage blankness is a good way to describe it in that um, a lot of my characters, especially in earlier work, but I think this continues on in my more recent work, mm-hmm. um, don't respond to things in ways that we think we they should. Um, we the, there is a, there's a kind of um, um, inability for 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 people to kind of do what we expect that they should do. 
um, or there's these characters who are caught in these positions where they, they should be making choices or they have choices to make, and they just become kind of paralyzed in some ways. And so, so there's that on the one hand, um, the, the blankness in terms of, of the writing, and, and you know, I see that as kind of tied to the French notion of écriture blanche as mm. well, that there's this, this kind of notion of, of, of blank or white writing um, that's just very, very stripped down. Um, but, but then also, I mean, I think that one thing that my work does is it's, it, it tries to be very, very precise in terms of how it looks at things. Mm-hmm. And then also, um, very, very, um, uh, direct in how it looks at certain things. And so I think some of the savagery is that it tries to see things in, in as, as kind of, uh, uh, direct a way as possible without any kind of like social veneer kind of protecting you from them. And so, so I, I feel like how that kind of works with ecological horror in my case is, you know, there's a couple of stories in, in the book. There's one called Curator and one called um, The Extrication, which are just um, very much projecting kind of in, in the direction of how bad things could get and trying through a particular sort of way of looking at, at the world to really think about, you know, how would someone react to this and, and how could they react very badly to this, I suppose. Um, uh, and, and, and that, you know, I, th- I think allows me to, to kind of have these, you know, personalities who, who have points of view that are a little bit different from me, um, but, but maybe are playing very deeply on my fears. Um, I mean, I think that the horror for me in general is, is like I, I write about things that do, that I genuinely worry about and that do frighten me. And I think the horror kind of, comes out of that and so then again the follow-up question what does ecological horror look like without savage blankness because i mean the way that you're describing it is more of a i guess minimalism in the Mm -hmm. writing whereas when i think of savage blankness i really think of just like it is this brutality of you know a loss of options there's 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 not much to do and that's so existentially terrifying and when you apply ecological horror to it yeah it's doubly that so yeah what does can ecological horror exist without that kind of savage blankness and what would that what's the opposite of savage blankness (laughs) well i I don't know i mean i'm trying in some ways to figure that out um in in you know as i as i kind of write through the other stuff um you know i i feel like i mean there's a lot of really interesting um ecological writing that that's a Mm -hmm. little more hopeful um, um, Matt Bell's book Appleseed, I think, kind of has that and has yeah, a kind of, yeah. you know, movement towards a fairly dark place, but also still has a kind of like some like glimmers of hope in it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I, I suppose that's that's what it would be. Ecological horror without kind of that savage blankness is is that there's going to be, you know, a lot of the kind of fear and a lot of the intensity of it but but there's still going to be these little glimmers of hope that kind of survive and and it's true that it, in, in a lot of my work um and i think it's partly that you know i'm I'm working in these very small spaces with with short stories and so mm-hmm. i can kind of do this thing where it's this blast of bleakness and then move on to something else and the reader at least has a moment where they can like digest and, and breathe and and think about the world around them and move on um, whereas if you're doing that for a novel it's just like you know, you'll be exhausted like by 30 pages in. <laughs> so so I, I feel like the people who are doing kind of stuff that's ecological that maybe has 
you know, a horror element, but, but maybe is a little more hopeful. It's they're usually working in longer forms. A large majority of the characters in uh, the glassy burning floor of hell share a trait that we here at weird era love to read about and explore moral ambiguity. Uh, none of them is particularly interested in doing good as much as they're motivated by their own wants and desires and needs. Um, there's a particular commonality in this motivation too, that of direct undiluted survival in the face of extinction. Are you purposefully exploring moral ambiguity in this collection as we in our present reality seem to be inching closer to destruction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something I've always been interested in. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm an excommunicated Mormon and I think the religion is was something that you you kind of grew up with with a lot of emphasis on choice and moral choice and making mm -hmm. choices and being responsible for your choices, um, and and you know I, I think that that's really made me think of that kind of um, you know the, the the morality behind certain choices we're we're making, but yeah the the, the whole thing in terms of um, the moral ambiguity of the characters I think that they're they're these um, people who who um, often don't know how to think of themselves in relation to the world as a whole and mm. are trying to kind of have a space for themselves um, and, and do kind of default to kind of selfishness, which I think is kind of the contemporary mode for people. You yeah. know, I mean, this is, this is a, a kind of extreme version of it, but, but that, um, you know, and then they do actually think about it, which is, is something that happens. I mean, they, they do kind of reflect on what they're doing and then they often do it anyway. <laughs> um, so, and, and, you know, and I feel like that, especially when we think about things like climate change, I mean, that's something that, that, um, you know, happens quite a bit with, with us as, as, as well. That's like, we, we know that there's issues. We know that those issues are, are in some ways unresolvable, but, um, we just keep on doing the same things anyway and hoping everything will work out. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe if we just, you know, if it gets too bad, maybe we can just like, um, vaporize sulfur and shoot it up into the atmosphere and then that'll kind of create you know and it's just the the, the, the number of possibilities for like how are we going to save things but that are that are likely to kind of intensify um, the problems um, are mm -hmm. just you know really manifold so yeah and I guess a big a big ask of you to answer this question uh, but one that I want to ask anyways is a follow-up um, can there be a way that moral ambiguity can be utilized as a tool for survival that allows for positive outcomes for everybody? Uh, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to think so in some ways. Um, and, you know, I mean, so, so the Kim Stanley Robinson book I was talking about mm -hmm. um, at the beginning with the ministry of, of the future ministry right. for yeah. the future of the future. I can't remember. Um, I mean, it, it does kind of make this case for, you know, if things are going to change, it's going to actually take people making a commitment to do things that they're ethically kind of opposed to, um, that, that, that there, there may have to be kind of, um, you know, uh, things done, including an up to murder, uh, um, to kind of, kind of make things stabilize. And, you know, there, there's a lot of moral ambiguity in something like that, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. but, but I do think that there is like, and we reach this point, you know, sometimes with social issues just in, 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 um, in America in particular, um, where, you know, at a certain point, if things aren't working, you, you have to um, take action. And so, so I, I do think that, um, you know, I, I kind of think that the next um, 
um, war that we're going to be involved if if we're ever in a war again is is going to be related to climate change, and, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we'll just see where it goes. And I do think that that's for me the most pressing political issue of of, yeah. of the moment and and probably of our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. That's I had a tough time even kind of formulating that question because it was you know. Uh, yeah. How can moral ambiguity be used as a survival tool? And it was, well, you're going to have to kill some people. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, what, what allows for a positive outcome for everybody? It's, it's hard, you know? Yeah, well, the positive outcome is really tough. And, and, but yeah, I mean, I think that that's the other thing is, is you don't want people just killing people. Um, yeah. And saying they're doing it for the good of good of mankind or whatever, because we've we've seen kind of how, you know, that that can that can go in the past and this kind of pseudo utopian thinking that ends up um, with people in camps and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so 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 it's it's a really thorny, complicated moral question, um, and and I I don't have a clear answer for how how to do it. But I really I mean I'm weirdly I mean despite the kind of things I I write. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of weirdly hopeful about humanity. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so, and I think it's part, part of the, 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 um, the reason I can write the things I, I like is because, you know, I, 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 I still am kind of an optimist, even though the work is, it can be very, very dark. So jumping off that and you actually, you kind of brought it up earlier, uh, but we'll expand on it a bit now. Um, I recently spoke with Toronto-based author David Demchuk about his latest horror novel, Red X, in an episode of Weird Era. Um, In our interview, he brought up the fact that, as he is primarily a writer of horror, he tries not to re-traumatize himself with his content by writing about things that he finds particularly scary or that might cause him, you know, further psychological pain. Um, So I want to bring up a particular current that I found running through several stories in the glassy burning floor of hell. Um, The idea of the self as the monster. Uh, In different stories, we experience this in leg, a sentient prosthetic leg can shapeshift to appear like human counterparts um, in Palisade. And I'm so sorry for the simplistic turn I'm about to take, but uh, tree creatures take the form of the person they're hunting. Uh, It comes up again in Jessel. It comes up again in His Haunting. Uh, If we use the Demchuk school of horror writing as a basis, where does your fear of the self fall? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, well, so, so when I was a kid, I was incredibly phobic and I was kind of afraid of everything. I was afraid of heights. I was afraid of the dark, um, and, 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 you know, various other things. Um, and, and for, for me, that kind of fear of the self is, is more of a kind of philosophical fear. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it is one that, that I think is quite, both quite real and quite fascinating for me. Um, I, I don't really think that, um, you know, I don't avoid writing about the things I'm afraid of because I'm worried about re-traumatizing myself because I think that there's there's something about, at least for me, the process of writing about something and processing it through language um, that that transforms it a little bit. And so I, I very often find myself kind of t- tapping back into fears that I've had um, and and writing about them pretty directly. And, and even if there is this kind of moment um, and of, of kind of, you know, terror kind of welling back up to the surface. It, it is something that gets kind of, you know, it, it both is makes it genuine, but also allows it to be kind of reprocessed and and in, in what I see as a kind of positive way. Um, so so, 
But but I, I think with, with just this notion of fear of the self, I mean, I, I, I think that the two things that haunt me most are um, the feeling that things are not real in some ways. Mm. And so the idea that, that, that what I'm experiencing isn't what's actually happening, I think that can be really unsettling and really disconcerting. And, you know, you've, you, we all have these little experiences where we think we see something and then it turns out it's not there or things like that. Um, and so, so, so that is something I just come back to again and again thematically in my work is, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the idea of reality kind of giving way underfoot and how does one kind of deal with that. And that, that's something that happens with a lot of my characters. Um, and, and there is something also just really fascinating about that to me. Um, that makes me keep returning it, to it, and then I, I think with with the idea of the self, I mean, there is this this, you know, we really like to think of ourselves as unified and consistent. We like to think of ourselves, or at least I do, as as good people, um, mm-hmm. and and um, there's so much um, uh, th- there's much more disjunction in, ter- in terms of how we really are in the world than I think we we want to think about. And so, you know, sometimes you have this experience where someone accuses you of being something or sees you in a different way. And you have this moment of having to recalibrate and either reject that or kind of reincorporate it into your model of who you are. And so that notion of who the self is, whether I'm, I'm, you know, a good person or a bad person, whether I'm a monster or not, is something that um, I'm, I'm really intrigued by. Um, not so much frightened by, but but just I, I think that that kind of as an ontological issue is, is, is kind of a central issue to just how we operate in the world. You know, if, if you don't really, I, I don't think we really fully understand our, ourselves. And if, mm-hmm. if you can't fully understand yourself or you don't fully understand yourself, it's hard to argue that you understand uh, reality. So fear of the self and moral ambiguity, uh, hand in hand? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think those are good friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, you know, and it's partly that, that, uh, um, I, and a lot of my characters, I mean, they have these moments where they're, um, they're, they're about to do something or thinking of doing something and they do have a kind of disconnection where they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're either kind of almost seeing what they're doing from outside or they're one thinking they should do one thing and, and doing something else. And there's, there's again and again, I think this comes up because I'm, I'm again fascinated by it characters will say um, a part of them thought this part of them thought this other thing. And so this notion that, that, you know, the, the self is not so much, you know, unified as it is layered and, you know, different mm-hmm. kinds of attitudes and uh, different, you know, even kind of different kind of constellations of, of, of being are, are kind of um, overlapping and, and it's hard to know sometimes where you go. I'm going to ask a very kind of nerdy, uh, selfish, specifically science fiction, uh, Mm -hmm. expand on your bibliography's canon for me question. Um, How do you feel about the proposition that your stories exist in a shared and singular universe? Is this an appropriate assessment of, you know, let's say for the purposes of this interview, just the glassy burning floor universe? Would each collection you write exist in its own container? You know, we have the Unraveling World universe, the Collapse of Horses universe, does everything kind of bleed into each other? And yeah, this is by far the nerdiest question I've ever asked an author. <laughs> um, no, well, that, that's great. I'm, I'm honored to be asked the nerdiest question you've ever asked an author. Um, well, so, so, I mean, that's a really interesting question because I, I feel like um, 
each book is each story is kind of responding to so when, when I write a story I often will think oh there's this other thing that this story reminds me of that I haven't really touched and that'll lead me mm-hmm. to write another sort of story and that that kind of kind of just keeps on going from you know branching out from different stories um, but but I feel like each collection is in in a way a conversation with the collection that came before it and they're all kind mm. of part of a larger conversation and in that sense i suppose they exist in the same world but it's almost like different people in the same world if that makes sense yeah, or yeah. or like li- different cities and you know they're definitely the same country or even the same state but uh, um you know it's it's there's there's a little bit of distinction between them so i mean i i I think there are stories in glassy burning floor of hell that would fit in with earlier collections and vice versa Mm -hmm. and so there is a sense of you know it's like there's these tunnels between different collections that you you know a story could pass through or things like that and and ideally yeah um as you read different collections it'll make you think um differently about the collections that you've already read I feel like I kind of dodged that question because I'm not quite sure how to answer it in some ways. It's a good question. Um, and it is this, this kind of notion of, are you building a world overall? And I feel like I'm building lots of tiny worlds that are still in a kind of world, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's a, an excellent way of putting it because I think that is kind of the question that I was trying to ask. And I mean, if, you know, for our listeners, even if, if you've gone back on our weird episode, on our weird era episodes, um, you know that I love world building. So kind of any piece of fiction that I consume that, that has this kind of vibe that, uh, the glassy burning floor of hell does, I'm naturally just going to try to, try to mesh them all together and, 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 and put them into this world where they concurrently exist and interact yeah. with each other and then make it separate and then give me a new world to, uh, to expand on. So right, I just right. really wanted to ask that, like I said, very nerdy <laughs> yeah. question. I mean, there's something about mood that's pretty consistent through all the collections. Mm-hmm. So I think that's mm-hmm. part of it. And then the, there are some, some that are much more directly connected. Like I have a story called the Warren, a novella, um, that's really connected to a novel called Immobility, which is really connected to a story in this book called Nameless Citizen. And they're oh, all yeah, kind yeah. of dealing in, uh, in, it's not exactly the same world, but it's like versions of the same world, if that makes mm. sense. And so they're all really kind of communicating with one another. So, so and, and there are games like that I play. Um, there's even like particular lines that repeat from, from one collection to another, but in slightly different contexts. So, so yeah. It's almost like parallel universes rather than a shared universe. Right, yeah, that's that's probably the, a good way to think about it. Yeah, it's slightly different parallel universes. <laughs> a mirror is held up to nearly every character in the stories in this collection. Uh, they find themselves in situations where they're forced to confront themselves, and this definitely goes back to the question about fear of the self. Is the... Uh, is that literally what the glassy burning floor of hell looks like Hmm. um yeah there's a lot of mirrors in the collection there's a lot of mirrors in my work in general and and that that notion of of the self i think is very tied to that um and and i hadn't thought about that directly but but i i do think yeah that there is something reflective about the glassy burning floor of hell and 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 there's something you know both reflective and and 
damaging and transformative. So, so maybe, yeah, all those things, if that makes any sense. Oh, I think that so. I think that's the most terrifying concept of all would be <laughs> the floor <laughs> of hell is a mirror that you have to hold yourself to and, and really right. confront that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's something I mean, mirrors come up in a lot of my work. And, and it's probably it has something to do with me liking Borges and his interest in mirrors kind of translating mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, but but yeah, there's a story in an earlier collection called The Dismal Mirror, which is pretty directly um, related to that. But, but yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but this collection, that is another thematic thing that happens. This kind of um, seeing the self or, or, or mirrors is, is something that's really big. You know, I really, I love, love, loved this collection so much. I think it's coming at a really interesting time. Um, we're, we're having a blast hand selling it at the bookstore. Uh, people oh, are really great. responding well to it. Oh, good. Thank you so much for doing that. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And thank you for answering my questions. Um, You're welcome. I'll be sure to uh, book you for an interview for your next collection when we can talk more about uh, (laughs) pandemic writing and pandemic horror. Sounds good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And I'm delighted you like the book as well. Thank you, Brian. And uh, thank you, listeners. Take care.